Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. Um, let's jump in. Last week, we, uh, we began this thing here called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. Here's the heart and soul of it. Over doing ministry um, for, for 20 years and in just my own personal journey, I have found that people who come to church have lots and lots of questions. And many times, many of those people are afraid to ask them or embarrassed to ask them, or don't know who to ask. Don't show hands on this by any means, but just see if you identify. How many times has there been a question that you've had, and you thought that by asking it, it might somehow reveal something in you that could be perceived as doubt or weakness or a sin issue, and you were afraid of being judged? How many times have you had a question where you've said, I have been a Christian for 30 years, I should know the answer to this, and if I ask it out loud, everyone around me is going to know I'm not as smart as I think that they think that I am. You know what I mean? And simply this too, how many of you have come into a church for a first time and you're like, what is this about? Or you've come to Christianity for the first time, or maybe you've had a little bit of limited experience with it growing up as a kid, but, but it was never anything that was a regular part of your life. And you come into this place, and it seems like everyone has this, this, this language that they speak and these ideas that they believe, and you're not really sure what they're about, and you don't know who to ask, and you don't want to stick out as the new guy. You know what I mean on these? Guys, church is meant to be a place where we're growing together. And growing means we can ask the questions that are churning in our souls. So what today is about is asking those questions about God, theology, the Bible, this church in particular, its intersection with life. Anything is fair game. I don't care how crazy it is, how heretical it is, how vexing it is, how off the wall it is, how sincere it is, how shallow it might be, how deep it might be. Any question is fair game, and what you can do is pull out your phones right now and text them to this number, one 314 again, 314 Zero F-O-F. Okay? Now, here's how this works. Last week, who was here 9 o'clock last week? We had a bit of a technical snafu last week, and this is what happened. As your texts were coming in, some of them were automatically going into an archive folder, and I never saw them until afterwards. We fixed the issue before 10.30, but what that means is that a number of questions were, were asked last week that I never got a chance to even see. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to start with the questions that went unanswered last week. But while I'm doing that, let those questions maybe spark new questions today. Or ask a completely original one, and I'll intersperse them throughout and get to them at the end. Does this make sense? So let's dive on in. Question one from last week. Jurassic World is now out. Anyone see it? Go to the movies more, guys. Jurassic World is coming out. It is now out. So the Earth, 6,000 years old or 6 billion? Fantastic question. And unfortunately, I cannot give you a clean answer, though I will tell you what I believe. Let me walk you through it. What you need to do when you try to answer this question about how maybe the the, the Genesis creation account and, and evolutionary theory combine is ask the same fundamental question to both arenas. 
what are the interpretive methods you are using to come up with your answer? It's common in the evangelical world for people to say that the Bible teaches a 6,000-year-old universe. Ask this question. What interpretive principles are you using and bringing to the Bible to come up with that answer? Likewise, prevalent um, scientific theory is to say that the earth is 6 billion, roughly, give or take, years old. Ask the same question. What criteria, what interpretive principles are you using to come up with that answer? My encouragement to you is not to just swallow the quick answer off the bat, it's one or the other. Get under the surface and see why each camp is coming to that conclusion and judge whether their methodology is, in fact, as sturdy as you think it is. Because there are a lot of biblical believers out there who think that the Genesis account can say the earth is far older than 6,000. There are scientists out there who say the scientific evidence can suggest the earth or the universe is a lot younger than 6 billion. You got to do your homework on this. Now, I won't leave you hanging completely. I will give you my take. I think that per Genesis account, and and, and scientific stuff kind of backing it up, as limited as my experience is there, that the earth is far younger than the average idea out there in scientific theory. However, I think it can be older than 6,000 years old because I don't think Genesis demands it be, in fact, that young. Now, if this really gets into you and you're interested in this, and it's not just like a passing question going, oh, that was fun, Come see me afterwards. There are two books I will put in your hand and read these and they will give you different viewpoints on this topic from different scholars who love the Bible and science deeply. Great one. Next question. From last week. So, where did this idea of purgatory come from in Catholicism? Was there ever a biblical basis or is it a man-made concept? First of all, let's lay the groundwork. What is purgatory. It's a belief prevalent in Roman Catholic theology predominantly, but other strands as well, that says when believers, it is not for unbelievers, but when believers in Christ die, before they go to heaven, they go to a waiting room, a holding pattern. Circle O'Hare a few times before God brings you into land. And what you're doing in this place is you're being purified. So if you're destined to go to hell, if you've rejected Christ, you will never be in purgatory, you go to hell. But if you are a believer and you've been saved and you're going to go to heaven, you go here first to get holy enough, righteous enough, ready enough, purified to make it to heaven. Does the concept make sense? What purgatory is based on is not so much a scriptural maxim but a theological strain. Do you understand the difference? It isn't based on a proof text or a passage or some kind of like thing that you pull out of 1 Thessalonians where Paul talks about this place called purgatory. You will not find the name or the concept in the Bible. It comes out of a theological strain of thought which basically says, well, I know God's righteous. I know I'm not. Somehow, when I die, I don't think I'm going to be righteous. So how's God get me ready? I need a place like that. The Protestant line of thinking, 
is that when Jesus dies for you, he not only saves you, he declares you righteous. He not only saves you, he declares you holy. That somehow when you are in Christ, his holiness counts for you. His righteousness applies for you. So the logical idea of purgatory evaporates. Okay? Next question. What would you tell a child if they tell you they are gay? Here is the very first thing you tell them. Come here. You put your arms out like that, and then you hug them, and then you hold them until they're ready to let go. That's the first thing you do. Because I tell you, whatever fear, trepidation, uncertainty it's creating in you, they are carrying it ten times more than you are. And it's at this point that they have dared to risk that maybe this person who calls me mom or dad will be one that can help me, will be one that will listen to me, will be one that can can bring me some acceptance within this because I guarantee you they have taken a huge risk in doing that. It starts there. Now, where it goes from there is going to depend on a few factors. How old's your child? Because if it's your 9-year-old or your 11-year-old or even your 13-year-old coming to you saying something like this, as a parent, I would encourage you to start asking questions of yourself like this. What are they being exposed to? Who's talking to them? What are they listening to? What's happened to them? What's going on in their life or what have they experienced that is bringing questions like this even to mind? And be there ready to navigate those paths with them and, and, and probing and asking and figuring out why, why do you think that? And, and did someone tell you that? And, and what do you think gay means? Now, if they come to you and they're 25 or 32, we're talking an entirely different thing. And in that case, here's my suggestion. Stop talking and just listen. Let them tell you why they think this is happening. Let them tell you their story. Let them tell you where they're coming from. Let them talk and reserve judgment. Just listen and hear what they have to say. And out of the relationship, be that parent. Be that parent that loves them no matter what. Be their parent that's there to guide them and bring them wisdom. Be that parent that is there to ask them tough questions. But love them. One more caveat I want to throw on this one. And it's simply this. In our culture today, I have come to the conclusion that people do not understand what intimacy is anymore without sex involved. I've met people who think they're gay because they love someone of the same sex. I hope you love someone of the same sex. I hope you have intimacy and connection with people of the same sex. I think of David and Jonathan, the Bible, who had this intimacy together that was not sexual, but that was closer than anything you can imagine. And I've met so many people today who have said, I love her, I must be a lesbian. Our culture has no idea what real intimacy is about anymore. Hetero or homo. Be ready to have that discussion. Next question. What happens to Jews when they die? They usually get buried. <laughs> Please explain the sin 
against the Holy Spirit. Let me read this to you. From Mark chapter 3. My gosh, my Bible's falling apart. Mark chapter 3. Here's what it says. Jesus is meeting with these Pharisees, and they come, and they see these, these miracles he's doing. They see these amazing signs he's doing. It is so evident before their eyes who he is and who sent him and what he's about, but they hate him, and they can't accept it. And this is the story. This is what happens. It says, let me find it. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, Look at Jesus, he's possessed by Beelzebub, the devil. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them to him, and he began to speak to them in parables, and said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if Satan is opposed against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven all their sins and all the blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. It is the only time you will see in the Bible that it talks about a sin in specific ways that cannot be forgiven. And this has caused panic and fear throughout Christians, throughout history, thinking that they've done it, thinking that they've lost their salvation, thinking that their fate has been sealed and it is over. I won't get into the story today. I am in ministry in many ways because I was convinced that I had committed that sin and I had to find the answers that my salvation depended on. If you are asking this for more than just a intellectual curiosity, come talk to me. As someone who's been there, I can help walk you through. But let me boil it down in simple ways to just say this. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I don't think it's saying the Holy Spirit than putting your favorite four-letter word after it. I think it's something different because blasphemy at its core is hatred, rejection, rebellion. It's saying, I spit in your face. I want nothing to do with you. I cast you out no matter who you are. And the Holy Spirit is the one who brings you to faith. Do you know this? You can't believe in Christ without the Holy Spirit. You just wouldn't. Not according to the biblical record. You're too messed up. You're too corrupt. I am too. If God's Spirit was not working on your heart, you would never come to repentance or faith in Jesus. So when the Holy Spirit works in your heart to create faith and you reject him, and you cast him out, and you spit in his face, and you say, I want nothing to do with that. You sever the, the pipeline of grace. You basically cut yourself off from faith and trust. And so the blasphemy or sin against the Holy Spirit is really the same thing as like unbelief, rejection of God, unrepentance. Make sense? This is why when the end shall come, no matter what your sins, they are paid for by the blood of Christ. But if you reject Christ, you reject his presence as well. Hopefully that helps. Let me take a couple live texts in and see where you guys are coming from. I'll let that boot up and I'll hit another one. Why doesn't God just get rid of Satan and his demons? Oh my gosh, how I wish. 
You know, to me, it really parallels the, the question, why doesn't God just come back and make it all right today? God does promise a day when he's going to do exactly that. He says he's going to cast him into the lake of fire. He promises a day when he's going to come and vindicate all wrongs. A day when he's going to come and justice will be done. He promises a day that's going to come when everything's going to be set right again, when suffering disappears. But on that day, evil will be judged. And why doesn't God do it today? Because God doesn't want to get rid of anyone. God doesn't want to punish anyone. He doesn't want to judge anyone. He doesn't want anyone separated from him for an eternity. So what the Bible says is that God is patient. And it warns us, don't understand God's patience as blind eye or reluctance to act. But he is patient, wanting all to come to repentance. In that time, things like this remain. And we suffer, and we wait. Question that came in. Death is said to be happy in a sense. Does that mean we should always celebrate instead of mourn? No. The key word being always. You shouldn't always celebrate instead of mourn because the Bible also says death is the enemy. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. God never intended for people to die. God never intended us to feel the pain of separation of death. And if someone close to you has died and you're mourning right now, it's okay. In fact, the only time it's recorded that Jesus wept was the death of his friend. So while we, we, we don't grieve without hope, while, while our mourning has something uh, of a future in store, it doesn't always have to be celebration instead of mourning. Give yourself that space. If the Old Testament was all handwritten and takes years to write, how could so many Jewish scholars have had copies? Great question. It's fascinating how the early Jewish scholars would do this. This was the painstaking labor Jewish scholars poured into getting the text right. Let's say they had a copy of the scroll of Jeremiah. What they would do is they would gather into a room, and one would read, and the others would copy. Now, this would go on for how long? How long would this take? Days? A week? Maybe a month? I don't know. But when it was done, they would give those copies to other people to proofread or check against the text. Now check this out. This is by hand, in horrible conditions, by dim light, with all the cramped, con you know, no air conditioning, no heat, your pen's running out, you know, you don't just get your other bick out of your pocket and keep going, right? If they found two errors, two errors in the text, two errors between original and copy, errors as slight as a single letter, they'd burn it. They would burn it for risk that the error would transmit. If they found one error, one error in word order, one error in a letter, one error in something like that, you were allowed to keep it for personal use as long as you never shared it with another human being. That was the levels that they took to get the text clear.
And why are there so many copies? Because they love the text. They loved it so much, they would devote their lives to studying every, as Jesus would put it, jot and tittle. Every smallest stroke of the letter and least stroke of the pen. That's how much they loved the text. I got like 27 Bibles in my house. How many go unopened on a daily basis? To love the text as much as they loved the text. Oh my gosh, right? Another question from last week. Is FOF a Bonhoeffer church willing to stand up to political correctness regarding abortion, Muslim beheading Christians and Jews? Are we doing anything as a church? Let me approach this in a couple of different ways. One, I'm always reticent to give a yes or no answer to a question like, is FOF a Bonhoeffer church? Because that assumes that what you mean by a Bonhoeffer church is the same thing that I mean by a Bonhoeffer church. And it also assumes that your understanding of Dietrich Bonhoeffer is correct. So let's start here. What the heck does that even mean? So don't even text it in, all right? Who's Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryan German living in the 1930s and early 40s in World War II Nazi Germany. When Hitler rose to power, he came to America. He saw the writing on the wall. He was a smart guy. He came to America. He went to Union Divinity School here in the States where he studied and learned and developed theological acumen beyond belief. And it was while he was here in America watching what was happening in Germany that he was stricken in his conscience. And he said, what I'm doing isn't right. That's my homeland. Those are my people. God has called me to go there. And in the midst of this, he moved back to Nazi Germany. It's like you as a Christian moving to Syria today. Okay? He moved there. He was eventually um, arrested and executed 11 days before the collapse of Berlin. You believe the timing on that. He was a guy that gave his life. So let me approach it now that you got a sense of who Bonhoeffer is in a couple of ways. Is FOF a Bonhoeffer church willing to stand up to, and I'm just going to go dot, dot, dot? And the simple answer is yes. Uh, Fellowship of Faith is involved with a number of different social justice avenues, both locally and in the world today. You can go to our website and find what some of those are. Now, maybe the ones on there are ones that you don't think of as being the right ones. I don't know, and that's a discussion that we can have. But are we involved? Yes. But here's the real challenge back to you. Bonhoeffer didn't say, what's the church doing about it? He said, what am I doing about it? And if you're asking that question today, that's my question back to you. Bonhoeffer didn't see the church as something to hide behind. Bonhoeffer knew he was the church. And he went to Syria to minister to ISIS, even if it meant his head. Does that make sense? Because that's what it means to be Bonhoefferin, not just writing a good blog. Good question. This Jenner thing is an abomination. Why is the church silent? 
Last week, I got a similar question at 10.30, um, but, but for the sake of keeping this to where you might attend, let me answer it here. Uh, off the bat, you know, whenever I hear the word abomination, you know what I always think of legit? Do you remember that claymation Rudolph with the abominable snowman bumble? <laughs> it, it, it's a word that kind of like gets that. And what I loved about it was like bumble was actually welcomed into the house and had a role of putting the star on the tree. And maybe those things that are abominable in this world should be things that we should be going towards with love and grace as opposed to just judgment from the safety of where we sit. But to the question, why is the church silent? Oh my gosh, do you like, do you like listen to Christian radio? Do you read anything published by Christians? It is all they've been talking about for like two months. I'm so sick of hearing about it, actually, because it's everywhere. So when you ask why is the church silent, maybe look into that more. Second, don't forget this. There is no such thing, at least in its visible presence, as a monolithic entity known as the church. Who's the church? We are. And they are, and they are, and they are. And there's different views and different beliefs and different opinions on so many things. The church is very much fragmented and pocketed in the world today. There is no one who speaks for the church on this globe today. So what you hear or see or don't hear or don't see might be very different within the church today. And I encourage you, key into some of the things that's out there. You'll find a wide spectrum and see what's being said and what people in the church of all spectrums and varieties have to say. There's an OT passage that I can't figure out. Man travels a long distance to obtain his wife. On the way home, they stop in a town. Men in the town want this man, but he gives them his wife. Men in town defile, murder, new wife. Lousy, no good husband takes dead wife, cuts her into 12 pieces, sends her parts to the 12 tribes. What? Why? Are you kidding me? Right? I love this one when this came in. Yes, this is a true story. Yes, it comes out of the book of Judges. Yes, it is a mess. No, it is not kidding you. This is the record of what happened. Good question. Always confused by the changing moral codes in the Bible. Twelve tribes from four women, Solomon and his wives. And then they want to stone Mary because she's pregnant. Not exactly consistent? No, it is not consistent at all. And you know why? Because people aren't consistent. See, it, a question like this to me sometimes, it, it may. It may reveal a mistaken belief that you have about the Bible. Do you think this is a theology textbook? Do you think this is a moral code? That, that, that cover to cover, what this is interested in, in doing you is, is telling you what's right and wrong and showing you what's right through example. That when you come across people in the Bible and the stories of Israel and their history, that these are moral examples. I mean, I'm just telling you now, if you think that, um, get out your knife, right? That is not what this book is. This book is a record. The good, the bad, and the ugly. What I love so much about the Bible is it doesn't sanitize humanity. It doesn't try to wash away the hard questions. It doesn't pretend like evil doesn't exist. 
Um, you turn on the news and you hear that humanity is good and then you see the things we do. Not exactly consistent, right? Not much different than there. So no, what I encourage you to do is, as you read the Bible is to do this. Separate the moral code from how people live it. Separate the moral code, the ideal that God lays out, from the ways people may or may not properly engage with it. And if you keep that distinction in mind, a lot of these crazy things like 12 tribes from four women and Solomon and his wives, despite being told in other places not to do it, suddenly I think start coming into a sharper relief. Next question. Is it sinful to eat pork? No. Next question. When God sends someone to us again, how will we know this is who we should believe and trust in? We want to be his disciples, but we but don't want to be a non-believers. Now, as I've transposed these, I have done them letter for letter. Right? Remember the Jewish thing with the copies? Two errors from the text and I would burn it, right? So what you're seeing here is exactly what I got texted in. And I got to be straight up, I don't really know what this means. I'm not sure what you're asking. So text in clarification if you're here today. But let me take a stab. When God sends someone to us again, the first question I ask of this text is, what do you mean by that? Who are you talking about? Are you talking about like someone in your life who's a prophetic voice? Are you talking about a ghost-like spiritual experience where you feel a dead relative is coming to talk to you or you're getting a vision? I'm not really sure what you're getting at here. But the fundamental question, I think, applies to both. How will we know this is who we should believe and trust in? Short answer, you don't. You don't know if it's who you should believe or trust in. Anytime someone tells you something, you should not swallow it 100% as the gospel truth. See, what God gives us in this world is his spirit. And his spirit works in three major ways. His spirit works through this. His spirit works through the voices of the church, which means people, which means mature believers, which means the voices of others speaking into you and giving you guidance both now and through history. And the spirit works within your conscience. And those three together make a powerful trifecta. But the danger that we run into is when we put all our eggs in one basket. Because you can misinterpret scripture. You could surround yourself with friends who tell you what you want to hear, and you can sear your conscience so that it isn't giving you accurate feedback anymore. You've got to keep them all in balance. And if you're facing a major issue, test it against all three. Take what you're wrestling with and questioning and test it against all three. And out of there, choose the path of wisdom. Make sense? There's a, a clip I want to show you today. And, and I think it, it's something to keep in mind, even as I speak up here today, but as people maybe speak into your lives as well. Can you just jump ahead and show that quickly, please? What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. 
I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. That is always a possibility from any pastor, from any church, from any author, from any favorite radio broadcaster, from any trusted friend or relative in your life. Test it. Question. Why do priests always drink all the communion wine (laughs) and never give any to the congregation? And do you think this has anything to do with the great number of alcoholic priests? Why do they drink all the communion wine? Simple answer. It's what they believe about communion. What Roman Catholicism teaches about communion is that when the priest consecrates the elements, the bread and the wine actually cease to be bread and wine, and they turn into the body and blood of Christ, purely, truly, and exclusively. Yeah, they'll say, I know it doesn't taste like it. I know it doesn't look like it. I know it doesn't smell like it, but it is. All right? It is the body and blood of Christ. Well, you know... That's what you believe it is. You got it in your hands. You don't take that stuff lightly, right? That's why the bread, when they're done, they lock in that box so no one kind of like, oh, it fell on the floor, right? That's why the priests will drink it, consume it, because you don't want to dump it down the toilet. It just feels a bit blasphemous. Make sense? That's why they drink it all. In fact, the tradition developed that they wouldn't give that portion of it because, don't want to risk spilling it, Don't want to risk misuse. Don't want to risk, "Mm, got that on my lips. Not making that up. But fundamentally within Catholicism, it really is about the priest doing the right that matters. And is this the, uh, the reason there's so many alcoholic priests? I don't actually blow that off in part. Because a priest is required to do Mass every day. And you plan a service for 300 and like 18 show up. Good times that afternoon, you know? You and Jesus are getting like that. (laughs) And don't underestimate the consumption of alcohol every single day. But you know, here's the reality, especially in priests that I've known and just in my side, it's a tough job. It's a tough job where you're on the firing line. People are always demanding things of you. And especially for a priest, there's no one to confide in. There's no wife to go home to. There's no friend really outside your parish and you can't trust them, right? These are the realities. And like counselors and cops and people in high-stress situations where they're constantly helping other people, it takes a toll on your soul. Hence the issue in the priesthood today. Great one. Let's jump back to the questions I missed and finish those up, okay? Well, cue me up here in just a sec. Next one. All right, here we go. Oh, that was it, huh? All right. <laughs> Let me take a few of the uh, text-ins before we finish up today. While godly and righteous, is marriage ultimately a man-made institution? Yeah, I think so. But again, like you said, that doesn't make it bad. Because here's the thing. God works through man. What God began in the Garden of Eden was the kernel of something, not the completion of something. And what God did is he created 
human, if I can extend it, in his image to continue his work, to bring his goodness, to develop beauty and life and culture and goodness and all the things that make that happen, marriage being one of them. And it's something God chose to invest himself in and work through. Now, like all things, does that mean that we as humanity don't royally butch it? Of course we do. But what's cool about God is he's a God that just doesn't discard something because it doesn't work anymore. He's a God who comes down to seek to restore and redeem that which was always meant to be reflective of his will and good at the core. Good one. What about the people who, past and present, haven't heard of Jesus Christ? How do they experience God, and what does faith mean for them? The book of Romans will actually talk about this. And, and it's interesting that for the Bible, this is far less an issue for the biblical authors than it is for many Christian thinkers today. The Bible didn't seem to have a hard time with this one at all, as though, oh my gosh, what is going to happen to the people in sub-Saharan Africa in 48 AD who Paul didn't get to travel to yet on a missionary journey? It's just not an obsession or worry of theirs. Paul will write about it in a few ways. In one way, he says is this. There's not a single human being who is without excuse. All of us, no matter when we've lived, what situation we've been born into, or what we may or may not have heard. All of us are without excuse. You can read in Romans 1, where it talks about how God's invisible qualities have been made known. You can read about how the prophets will talk about how God has imprinted those qualities on our heart. That all of us, at some fundamental know that there is something called good, and that we are not there. Right? Now, different people have wrestled with this and, and answered this in a variety of different ways. I will give you what I think is the best answer to this question. Jesus died for the sins of the world. All of them. For mine. For yours. For the sub-Saharan African in 48 AD who never got a chance to hear. Jesus died for all of them. Number two, God is completely unscrupulous. God fights dirty, he doesn't play by the rules, and he will manipulate and find any way to get to you, to talk to you, to speak to you, to work in your heart. He will bombard you 5,000 different ways each day. He'll never force you, but he will come to you and whisper to you and speak to you whether you know who he is or not, speaking to you about what is good, and revealing in yourself that you are not. So all of us, whether here at Fellowship of Faith or born in sub-Saharan Africa in 48 AD, come to the exact same place of knowing that there is something good and transcendent and powerful at work in this world and that we fall short. And all of us have the same choice at that crossroads. Do we walk away in shame? and saying, i got to distance myself from that. It hurts too bad. Do we gnash our teeth and reject it? Who does this world think it is to convict me of my sin? I like who I am. Or do we throw ourselves on God's mercy? Even if we don't have the right understanding of who God truly 
is, do we throw himself, do we throw ourselves on God's mercy and trust ourselves to him? Because fundamentally, that's what salvation is about through the merits of Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more way to think about this. Does your salvation depend on you having a 100% correct understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done for you? 100%. You want to go down that road? So what's the, what's the percentage then? 98%? 48%? Is it possible that some people have a distorted view of who God is that they've learned from what's on their heart and they've learned from his invisible qualities in the world even though they might not know the name of Jesus? By the way, do you know the name of Jesus? That's an English word. That's not his name. Are you calling upon the right name of the one by whom you will be saved? See what I mean? And I think it's in times like that that we, we do two things. A, trust that God is good and that God is gracious. And B, take serious our mandate to bring clarity to the nations of this world and the people of this world who God really is. Because that's what the scriptures obsessed about. And I'm looking at the top, and the text stream is there, and we're out of time. So hey, good news, we made some headway. I got through last week's chunk. I got through a good chunk of this week. I will roll unanswered texts this week into next week when we wrap this up. And of course, have live texting open again. Band, I'm going to invite you forward. Guys, I'm going to invite you to your feet. And I just want to say great, great questions. Keep asking them. Keep thinking. Keep wrestling with the truths of God in his scripture and its interface with your life. And I want to encourage you finally. That if an answer to a question has raised 10 more questions for you, you know something good has happened. Because God is so big, so infinite, and so beyond anything we can dream of ever mastering in this life that you've known you've come one step closer into the grace and presence and understanding of how big he really is. So I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, there are so many details about you that we we want to know. Some are there before our eyes and we just don't know where to look. Some are there as plain as day, but God, we get thick-headed, we don't understand. Some you've revealed to us and we just haven't taken the time to sift it out. But some, God, are, are truly at some point going to be beyond our, our knowledge and our understanding. And God, my prayer is that when we come to times like that, that we remember the, the essence and the heart of who you are. A God who is good and just, but a God whose mercy and grace trumps his own justice a God who's created us and all things good a 
God who has a purpose and a plan for each of us, a God who has given us mission and mandate, each and every one of us, a God who never gives up on us, a God who calls us to his side, a God who forgives, who redeems, who restores, a God who saves. May we never, God, give up on the quest of learning more about you. May we never, God, walk away from trusting who you are. So God, all this we pray. We love you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.